Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, everyone. This is Dev Raga, and welcome to podcast episode 26 of Dev Raga Personal Finance. As you know, in my episodes, the mission is basically to enhance your knowledge about finances, and in the process, I'm learning as well. Um, and the aim of this podcast channel is basically to make sure that um, you follow some basic principles of investing and basic principles of personal finance. And the core of the podcast is making sure that you save money, spend less than what you earn, and try and achieve a savings rate of at least 20% of your after-tax net income. That's the core message. If you don't get anything out of my podcasts, that is the core message, and that is what I think you should be aiming for, because I think that savings rate allows you to grow your money over time and let the power of compounding take effect. And that really has a significant um, bearing on your retirement phase. Now, in today's episode, I want to talk about a financial article that I read in MSN Finance, and then we'll talk about this concept of arbitrage. Uh, we'll talk about the different types of arbitrage, and particularly focusing on geographic arbitrage, which I've actually done, but I've never actually realized that that's what I'm doing. And it'll be interesting to see whether you've done it as well. First of all, in financial news, I read an article today about how Australians are becoming increasingly anxious when it comes to personal finance and what the future holds. Um, the NAB Consumer Index um, uh, sort of rated the anxiety amongst um, Australians about personal finance. Obviously, they did a survey with a group of people. Um, and the most anxious number is 100, and the least anxious number is zero. And they found the anxiety index to be around 62. Um, and they did this in December 2018. Um, and this is actually the highest it's ever been. This is despite the stock market doing reasonably well in Australia. And this is despite unemployment rate being reasonably low. And this is despite having more than 25 years of continuous economic growth in this country, which is fabulous. But still, Australians are anxious about personal finance. So why is that? Um, what are Australians anxious about when it comes to personal finance? The number one thing they found was cost of living. Now, for the overseas listeners, cost of living in Australia is actually quite high when it comes to food, utilities, private health insurance, um, fuel costs, um, and other sort of basic living expenses, accommodation, rent, mortgages, and housing, etc., the second thing um, they were concerned about is job security. Now, underemployment in Australia is a real issue. When the government releases statistics like unemployment at its lowest, what they're looking at is people that are employed for a minimum number of hours per week. But underemployment is a real problem. And I think uh, my colleagues and friends across the Pacific in the United States, you might find the same thing in your country, where even though unemployment rates are extremely low, the people that work and the people that earn a wage are just not earning enough money 
um, because they're still skirting the poverty line. That is a bit of an issue in Australia, probably not to the extent as it is in America, but certainly that's something that Australians are concerned about, job security and underemployment. The third thing they were concerned about was retirement. That's a huge worry. If you're struggling to make ends meet now, what about when you don't have an income? Relying on the age pension is not a good strategy. And the fourth thing that we're worried about is what if an emergency strikes? Now, in my previous episodes, I've talked about the concept of emergency funds. So they asked people, what if a $2,000 emergency came across your way? Would that cause you significant financial grief? And universally, the answer was yes. Some of the things that we're worried about when it comes to emergencies is unexpected medical expenses, health care, unexpected repairs, car troubles, etc., etc. Now, unlike our colleagues and friends across the Pacific, in Australia, we have a pretty robust public health care system. So if you're really sick, you will get the care that you need at no cost at all. But certainly, if you have a non-urgent problem uh, or if you needed to see someone as an outpatient, particularly in general practice or specialist services, um, yes, you might need to fork out some money out of pocket. Um, You will get most of it back in Medicare rebates. But again, you need to still have that cash flow to be able to pay that medical expense up front. Uh, prescriptions here are quite cheap. Um, again, you don't need to pay full price. But again, you know, if, if you're sort of not earning enough money and if you don't have enough disposable income and enough cash flow, then uh, you know, putting that money up front to buy medicines and or even do repairs if you don't have emergency funds Um, can be a real problem. Now, the test emergency fund in this case was $2,000 as expenses. That's what they asked people. Um, And out of all the people surveyed, 40% of the people experienced some sort of financial hardships in the last three to six months. And that's a huge number. That's almost 50% of people. And the most at-risk groups were women uh, and people aged 18 to 29-year-olds. And women, of course, in those age groups were the most vulnerable. And the most common cause of financial hardships was actually unpaid bills. Um, So that's what they were most anxious and worried about, not being able to pay the bills. And of course, you get the reminder notices again and again and again. So why is this a potential problem? Because globally, I think a lot of um, countries um, are worried about this sort of recession happening um, and um, economic growth being difficult to achieve, um, particularly in the UK, Australia, Um, in America. I mean, of course, Japan has had this sort of lull for many, many years. So what happens when people get anxious about their finances? What happens when people get anxious about what the future holds for them? They tend to spend less. Okay, so they tend to um, be very conservative in their spending. Now, if you listen to my podcast channel, I'm very conservative in my spending. I tend not to spend things that are just not necessary. And obviously, you know, there's a few luxuries here and there. Um, I don't skimp on air travel. Um, I don't skimp on children's education costs or extracurricular activities. Uh, But I will skimp on going and having a meal that costs, you know, a few hundred bucks. It's not something that I do. But um, certainly we do go out for restaurants and things. But if I'm anxious about my personal finances, I may be more conservative than what I am already. So people tend to spend less when they're anxious about their finances. Spending less means businesses have less customers and therefore they generate less revenue. And that's a problem because it means less profits. If you're having less customers spending money in your stores, then the businesses don't make enough money, then they make less profits, 
and sometimes even make a loss, and as a result, they need to cut staff, etc., etc. So this creates a feedback loop, um, and that feedback loop is very, very important. If consumers don't have enough money to spend, then that means the businesses don't make enough money and there's less consumers as a result and less employees and less businesses and less profits, okay? This is a reverse of the trickle-down economics that we hear about all the time. Nick Hanua explains this beautifully in one of his TED Talks. I really recommend everyone to YouTube it. It's a fantastic talk. And he talks about the uh, sort of the evidence that every time you have consumer spending and have enough disposable income and consumer confidence is high, then generally speaking, the economy does reasonably well um, because people have the ability to save their money, but most importantly, people have the ability to spend their disposable income. So that's the financial news that I read today, which I found quite interesting. And hopefully none of you who are listening are in a position of anxiety when it comes to personal finances. In fact, if there's one thing that I'm really, really keen for anyone to take away from these podcasts is if you save enough money, have those emergency funds, pay off all those consumer debts and just have good debts um, and just keep saving the money and keep investing the money for the rest of your life, you're unlikely to hit any major financial hardships. And if you do, you'll be very, very well prepared. Now, the main topic of today's podcast is arbitrage. So what is arbitrage? Um, there's a very famous movie. I think it featured Richard Gere um, uh, in the movie. I haven't actually watched it. I don't really know what it's about. I assume it's some sort of you know, financial sort of movie. I'm not sure. Um, but arbitrage is basically when you buy an asset in one marketplace and then you sell the same asset in another marketplace for a profit. This works really well for the share market because the share market is intercontinental and the share market is very fluid, as fluid as can be for a share market. It's not like liquid cash, but essentially it's quite easy to buy and sell stocks, um, particularly across the continents, um, particularly if you're an investment banker or hedge fund manager or one of those high-level trading companies. They do it all the time. Now, arbitrage doesn't work well in other sectors. So, for example, in property market, you can't buy a property in the state of Victoria, which is where Melbourne is, and then sell it in New South Wales because the property is physically located in Victoria. You can get customers from New South Wales, but that, by strict definition, is not arbitrage. So it only works in some uh, sort of sectors. It doesn't work in all sectors. Why does arbitrage work? Well, it only works if there's built-in market efficiencies. Oh, sorry, built-in market inefficiencies, I beg your pardon. So if all the markets were 100% efficient, then arbitrage is not possible. Well, hang on. In my previous podcast, I've talked that the efficient market hypothesis, which basically says all markets are efficient as they can be, therefore you can't beat the market. So you can see why there are some theoretical controversies um, about financial concepts, and this is kind of why. So let's dive into this concept of arbitrage in more detail. Why does this system exist? Why do we have arbitrage as a mechanism? Um, well, it ensures that markets don't deviate too much when compared to fair value in the long term. So here's an example. Supposing we didn't have globalization, okay? And supposing you're from, uh, I don't know, South Korea, okay? Uh, and supposing there's a particular product in South Korea that's extremely cheap, 
um, and it's very difficult to import or export products. And as a result of non-globalization, that product outside of South Korea is extremely expensive. Now, arbitrage means you just go to South Korea, buy that product, fly over to Australia and sell the product at a profit just like that. It's instant money and instant cash. But in today's market of globalization, um, that kind of is difficult to achieve at a huge scale because markets uh, relatively don't deviate that much and that's because of globalization. So in today's market, it's less of an issue. Due to the technological advancements, there are systems and softwares in place to make this less lucrative. eBay is a classic example. So any inefficiencies in the pricing mechanism is quickly fixed using software or using technological advancements. Okay, let's use an example of what um, arbitrage is. Okay, so supposing you have a company stock, and let's call that company X, uh, and that's trading at ten dollars in the Australian Stock Exchange. But at the same time, the same stock is trading at ten dollars and five cents in the London Stock Exchange. So technically, you can buy the shares in the Australian Stock Exchange and sell the same shares in the London Stock Exchange and instantly make. Five cents per share. This will continue until the company runs out of stock in the ASX, but in today's world, the markets pick up this inefficiency and correct for it using complex stock software. Okay. Now let's use a more pragmatic, real-life personal finance example. Forget about shocks, uh, stocks, sorry, and forget about share market. And another real-life example. Let's talk about apples. Okay. The apples, the fruit, not the not the apple, the company. So let's say apples um, in country town A is a dollar per kilo, but the same apples in another country town B is two dollars per kilo. So you buy from the cheaper town at a dollar per kilo and sell it in the more expensive town. And as you do this more and more, notice the price difference will slowly equalize. Why? Because the supply in the cheaper town dwindles as you buy more of it, which makes the price rise over time, and this is called supply and demand, and the supply in the more expensive town becomes higher because you're selling it there, so the price naturally comes down. And over time, using arbitrage, or the concept of arbitrage, you make a profit, but it runs out of steam because the supply and demand equalize in country town A and country town B. That doesn't stop you from moving over to product number B. So you can go to do the same thing for bananas and try and identify a market where it's undervalued and sell it in a market at a fair market value. Now there are various types of arbitrage. Now I've explained, you know, what that, you know, what that basically means. But there's actually three different types of arbitrage, and the main one that we'll be talking about today is geographic arbitrage because that's where personal finance, uh, you know, consumers can make a real difference in their personal finance. But let's talk about all the different types. But the main one we'll focus is geographic arbitrage. The first one is dividend arbitrage. Slightly complex. Um, I'll try and explain it uh, as best as I possibly can. Um, now, supposing a company's share is worth fifty dollars. And we know in a week's time there's a dividend of two dollars per share. Um, and supposing that um, there's a put option with an expiry of two weeks from now, and that's selling eleven dollars per share, and the strike price for that put option is sixty dollars per share. Now at this stage, 
I suggest you go ahead and read up what a put option is and what a strike price is. Um, so bear with me. Just assume those concepts that you, you know, I know that I haven't gone into it at all. Um, it's a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast, but just go up and read up on it. There's a really good video on YouTube about put options, call options, and also strike prices. Okay, you won't regret it, I promise. So you want to put a put option contract for 100 shares. So 100 shares uh, and the put option contract per share is $11. That works out to be $1,100, okay? And supposing you have 100 shares that you want to do that for, and each share is worth $50 at a cost, so the cost of the shares is $5,000. So the total cost now becomes $5,000 plus the put option contract, which is $1,100. So the total cost is now $6,100, okay? Just bear with me. In a week's time, you collect the $2 per share in dividend, so now you get a total of 100 shares and each share is worth $2, so the total dividend income for you is $200. Now your total expenditure is $5,000 plus $1,100 in put options, plus you get the um, uh, extra um, extra dividend um, uh, that you get, so $2 uh, per share plus uh, times 100 shares. But now you can execute the put option contract and sell the stock at uh, the $60 value. So it'll be $5,000 plus $1,100, which is $6,100 because that includes a put option contract. And magically, you've just made some money just by collecting the dividends. Now, it's a very, very complex concept. Um, now, of course, if the stock price drops by the time dividends are paid, well, that's why you put what we call the put option contract. So you have the uh, rights, but you don't have the obligation to execute that. This provides a protection. So you don't need to execute the put options. It's like an insurance policy. I'm sure I've confused all of you. Don't worry about it. Dividend arbitrage is quite complex. It's not something I do. It took me a while to understand this concept. And I you know, I think I barely understand it. Uh, but the key to that is you need to read up on call options, put options, and what strike prices are. And I think I'm just way too dumb for those things. So I really believe in keep it simple, stupid. So I don't do dividend arbitrage. I invest in index funds and I invest in dividend shares and I just collect the dividends and reinvest them and hopefully let the power of compounding to take effect over the long term. So keep things simple. The second type of arbitrage is taxation arbitrage. Now this you might understand a little bit easier and I understood this a lot easier. Basically what this means is that it takes advantage of transactions which are treated differently for taxation purposes in different marketplaces. Here's an example. Companies can restructure their business in Ireland, for example, or structure it in such a way that all the profits are routed to Ireland or Singapore because those countries' taxation is much less than what is paid in Australia. Now, had the company had to pay tax on their profits? So this is a real, real controversial issue. As you know, the current government is pursuing big corporations to try and make try and pay their fair share of taxes in Australia, which I tend to agree with. I mean, you serve the consumers here, you have to pay taxes here. It's a bit like me earning an income in Australia and saying, sorry, mate, I'm going to pay taxes in Ireland because it's a lot cheaper there. It doesn't work like that. So why is it any different to corporations? Now, um, the ATO are trying to go after these big corporations, trying to divert their profits to, com uh, to, to countries which have very, very minimal taxations, okay? So these companies are, you know, the big companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, um, you know, creating shell companies in other countries and just routing their money through there. Um, and that's called profit shifting. So they're using 
the taxation laws in different marketplaces to their advantage. That's called taxation arbitrage. Another example is trading of cryptocurrencies. Now, what's interesting, I didn't know about this. I actually looked it up. If you make a profit in Australia trading cryptocurrencies, you may have to pay the marginal taxes that relate to Australia. But if you buy at a cheaper exchange, then transfer the tokens to a crypto tax haven country like Denmark or Singapore or Germany, you can sell it there in those countries, make a profit and pay no tax at all because they don't have any tax for crypto profits. So the issue then becomes how you're going to bring the money back to Australia. That's another topic for another day. But essentially what you've now done is you've bought something here, sold it somewhere else and then collected the profits and not pay any taxes. That's called taxation arbitrage. Hopefully that was relatively easy for you to understand as it was for me. Now, the third concept is geographic arbitrage. This is something that we can all do. We probably have done. Certainly, I have in my life without even knowing about it. So let's talk about geographic arbitrage. Um, now, if used effectively, it can basically set someone up for life. Okay. It turns out that, um, that I certainly have done it in my life. Um, I didn't actually expect to do it. It was sort of forced upon me, but I'll but I'll, sort of, um, but I'll sort of talk about my personal example a bit later. So geographic arbitrage is basically taking advantage of cost of living and taking advantage of income disparities between various marketplaces. Um, and it can work in your favour depending on the type of uh, structure or type of profession that you have. So to give you an example, the general principles um, certainly is true in most uh, developed countries is if you go to the big smoke, if you go to the big cities, you're probably going to get paid a lot more. And the reason for that is cost of living is higher, education is higher, prices are generally higher, housing is higher, utilities are higher, etc., etc. That certainly is true for the big metropolises of Australia, which is Sydney and Melbourne. Okay, But in certain fields, like mining, for example, or certainly in the medical profession or nursing profession or most other health professionals, you actually get paid more if you go to smaller towns. So um, if you go to rural Victoria and you're a general practitioner or an emergency doctor or a nurse, you may actually get paid more by two reasons. One is your actual income and the number of patients and the workload is higher. And you might have to work more hours, so you end up getting more pay because you work overtime and you work after hours, you work weekends, etc., etc. Granted, you do a lot more work, but overall you end up with twice or three times as much pay potentially. Okay, And coupled with that is lower expenses. Housing is lower, rent is lower, travel is much less, petrol is cheaper, or even if it's more expensive, that's offset by low travel. Cost of utilities might be lower in some cases. And again, um, in some cases, if you're really lucky, particularly in the mining sector, all of those are actually taken care of. You fly in for two weeks and you fly out for two weeks and all of the expenses while you're there is taken care of in some professions. Certainly, if you did a locum profession in the medical profession, the hospital pays for everything. So really, you've got no expenses and all the gain. Um, now, uh, I did a sort of cost of living calculator between the major cities. And certainly, Sydney and Melbourne are the most expensive. Adelaide is reasonably expensive. Surprisingly, Perth is very cheap. Brisbane is expensive. Um, Darwin is, of course, cheap. And, of course, our cousins in Hobart are probably the cheapest. Now, there are some positives and negatives for this geographic arbitrage. And the first negative is money isn't everything. You know, generally speaking, you know, you have to move away from family. Uh, that's extended family or even your own personal family. So that affects proximity to schools, proximity to family members, 
Uh, if you have specific health conditions, you may not want to be too far away from major tertiary hospitals. The travelling headache, having to come back to the metropolises, driving, flying, um, boredom and lifestyle. So unfortunately in rural areas, um, you might not be as fulfilled in terms of what to do after hours or on weekends. Um, and of course, certain fields only exist in certain areas. So if you're a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist or in specific defence areas, then you can't really go to the centre of Australia and say, yep, I want to operate on people's brains or I want to you know, create rockets and fly them out or I want to have uh, defence contracts. It doesn't work like that. So geographic arbitrage only works for some professions. Okay. When is a good time for geographic arbitrage? Uh, the best time I feel to have, um, you know, take advantage of geographic arbitrage is when you're single, early in life, um, rather than when you have family or dependents or kids. Because once you had family, once you have partners, once you have uh, dependents, once you have kids, once you have extended family, in-laws, etc., you have too many vari variables that are not controllable. Whereas if you're by yourself, you're a single bird, um, uh, you know, you can, you're, you're basically free for all. You can travel wherever you want, whenever you want. Uh, it's much more flexible. Um, and therefore, you can keep your costs extremely low while still working, um, you know, those hours and, and, and making as much money as possible and keeping your expenses as low as possible. Now, in my personal life, uh, that's kind of exactly what I did. So um, I used to train in surgery. Um, certainly in medical specialties, um, you need to kind of move houses every six months. Uh, which was kind of annoying, but that's just part of training. So I did that for five years, uh, especially to country towns, uh, because most of the country towns and the hospitals, they get doctors from the city to come and rotate out every six months uh, at the registrar or senior level. Uh, and when in the country town, you just work your butt off. Um, it's not uncommon to do 150 hours per, uh, per, per fortnight, if not, if not more. I think I've done maxed out of more than 200 hours uh, per fortnight. Um, now, very controversial. Um, it's been in the media lately. I think doctors, um, especially surgeons, just work too much. And you've got to go, well, do I really want a surgeon who's been up all night to be operating on my, uh, on my heart or my lung or my abdomen? Well, maybe not. Uh, but back to, back to when I trained, um, it was something that I just accepted. Um, I didn't even think about it. Um, I didn't even think about questioning it. But I think nowadays people are saying, well, hang on, is that the right thing to do? Um, but you got paid heaps of money because you did heaps of overtime. You worked night shift, day shift, 24, 36, 48 hours continuously, um, and your expenses most of the time were fully paid. Your accommodation was paid, um, your meals were paid um, most of the time, electricity, utilities, you were just there to work. You had no life. But I was relatively young, didn't have kids, so it was a lot easier. I could just go there and, and, and just work my, work my butt off, literally, um, you know, make all this money and then just save, you know, my savings rate at one point was 75% or higher, um, you know, but I had this sort of general rule about having 50% savings rate. But anyway, um, some months be 75% or higher and you just basically go, well, okay, I'm just going to put it all in a savings account and just try and live off the 25% and try and even go aggressive and try and serve even more. Um, so I did save a hell of a lot of money, um, bought my house in my 20s, um, which really did set me up. Um, and I think um, that that's really helped me, uh, particularly those six-month rotations where, um, you know, you earned, you, earned your, you earned your coin. I mean, it's not as if they paid you for nothing, but um, certainly it gave me some flexibility. And I think because of that savings rate, I think it has helped me set up for life. So geographic arbitrage is not for everyone, but certainly if you're in a profession that allows for that, um, I would certainly seriously consider taking advantage of it. If you're in your 20s, if you're independent, you're easily movable, 
uh, if you've got some flexibility in your life, then yeah, take advantage of it, okay? So it's not for everyone, of course. So just to summarize in this uh, podcast episode, we started off by talking about an article that I've read in the MSN finance section, which was about Australians feeling anxious about their personal finance. And hopefully, you know, this mission of this podcast channel is if you can set up your emergency funds and save that 20%, pay yourself first money and invest it continuously for the rest of your life, then hopefully you'll never have to feel anxious about a financial situation. Um, so that's the mission. That's to you know try and promote some basic financial and investing concepts. Um, secondly, the main topic of today's podcast is arbitrage. We talked about dividend arbitrage, taxation arbitrage, and geographic arbitrage. Um, now it makes me want to go back and really watch that movie now because um, uh, you know when I sort of was learning about this I thought oh okay there's actually been a movie about it so uh, it might be worthwhile watching so um, I don't know if any of you have if you have don't give out the plot in the comments or Facebook section now remember the mission pay yourself first save that 20% consistently invest do it for the long term invest time in the market not timing the market that's the basic message be sure to check my other podcasts where I talk about superannuation, debt paying strategies, personal insurance strategies, wills and testamentary trusts, invest or pay off debt. Um, the podcast channel is growing. Thank you very much for all your support. I really appreciate the feedback I'm getting on Facebook, on SMS, phone, email, Whirlpool, um, and also on Listen Money Matters. Shout out to them as well. Until next time, pay yourself first, save 20% of your after-tax income, and think about geographic arbitrage. Um, who knows? You may be doing it uh, right this minute. Until next time, stay safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.